for the love of goats. We are talking about everything goat. Whether you're a goat owner, a breeder, or just a fan of these wonderful creatures, we've got you covered. And now, here's Deborah Neiman. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode. I am really excited today to have with me Richard Browning, professor of animal science and a goat researcher at Tennessee State University. And if you have ever talked to anybody who raises meat goats, everybody will tell you that the breed they raise is the best. So I was really excited to hear that Richard has been doing research since 2002 on boars, Kikos, Spanish, and myotonic goats, which are the four main meat breeds that you will find in the United States. So we are going to talk about all of those today. We're going to talk about what's awesome about each one and what's not so awesome. So welcome to the show, Richard. Glad to be here. So um, right off the bat, like you've been doing this for a long time. So why did you guys get started with this uh, research in 2002? Well, we were doing commercial cattle research, doing fescue toxicosis um, work with, with beef cattle, and we're looking at heat tolerant genetics. Now, we're using breeds such as Angus and Hereford and, and Brahmin and Cinepol, which the, the latter two are a couple of heat tolerant breeds. And then our administration decided that we need to kind of go in a different direction and you know, find an alternative to, to beef cattle. And so we decided, well, meat goats seem to be a growing thing. And so let's let's venture off into some meat goat research. And um, right off the bat, I, I recognize that there are some unique aspects of, of meat goat production and meat goat industry that lend itself to some, some real interesting research. And that area that we focus in on was the genetics because we've always done genetic research with the cattle and so we decided let's do this with the goats and we realized early on that although there were a lot of marketing activities going on with different breeds of meat goat there really wasn't any research to back up any of the the marketing claims or any of the hype that was really after with some of these breeds and that's how we got started okay so what was the first did you start with multiple breeds or did you just start with one breed we started with two breeds, actually. We started, we, we put a pilot project together in 2002. After we started with some, some weathers, we said, let's see, we, before we invest in any breeding stock, let's buy some weathers. And if we can keep these weathers alive for six months to a year, then we'll, we'll jump in with, the, um, with some breeding stock. And so we put together a group of boar weathers and some Kiko weathers. And I'm, you know, at the time, well, I'm learning about these different breeds, and these were two breeds that were really coming up, the boar in particular. But at the time, there was a growing interest in this other breed called a Kiko. And so we, we put some weathers together, and we did fine with the weathers. And after about seven or eight months, we said, okay, let's go on and put a little small herd of, of, of breeding goats together. So we bought, it was about 35 board does, all full blood registered, and about 35 Kiko does. And within the first year, we started having these goats dying on us. And we had never seen anything like this before. And I forgot what the numbers were, but out of those 60-some goats, there were like maybe 20 of them that had gotten sick and, and, and died or had all kind of health issues. And I'm thinking, okay, how am I going to explain this to our administration that we bought all these goats and we let them all die on us? But when we looked a little bit closer, we realized that, wait a minute, 
there's a particular aspect of which goats were dying and which ones were not dying. And what we realized it was the goats with the red heads that were having all the health problems and the other goats were seen to be doing fine. And so we decided, you know what, we're going to, we're going to double down on this. We said, we're going to shut this program down or we're going to really get in this. And, and that's what we saw that there's a, a real opportunity to do some, some, some breed evaluation research. And so we told the, our administration that, Hey, we got these goats and we found some real interesting, um, preliminary data that we really need to um, really follow up on for the benefit of, of the industry and producers. And so what was almost uh, uh, <laughs> the end of the project before it really started, we said, you know what, there's something to be investigated. So we went and invested in a lot of more boar goats. Uh, we went and bought you know, a bunch more Kiko goats. And then from year two on, we added Spanish goats. So we had a three breed dial that we we're running. In that very first pilot project, we used Spanish bucks to breed to those Kiko does and those boar does. And a lot of producers were saying, what in the world are y'all doing? Y'all got these expensive boar does and you're putting a Spanish buck on them? What are y'all thinking? But that was part of the research protocol. We needed to make sure that if we're evaluating these does, that we don't have any kind of sire or buck influence affecting the data. So we decided once we said we're going to expand the herd, we said, well, let's add some Spanish goats to the program. And so we ended up for the next you know, several years running straight boar, straight Kiko, and straight Spanish does. And we introduced boar bucks and Kiko bucks. So we had all three breeds of, of buck as well. And one of our thoughts was maybe we can produce a better um, group of, of, of replacement does than going out and trying to buy them. And so that's why we went and bought four bucks to breach these four does. So we said, maybe we can produce some um, four does that were better than what we were buying. But in the end, it didn't really make that much difference if we were buying them or, we were, or if we were producing them. They just, they had some deficiencies that, that we weren't able to overcome in, in our management program. So I know one of the things that I just heard in general is that boars are bigger and meatier and Kikos are more parasite resistant, which is a super simplistic summary. <laughs> but is that true? And what are some of the things, some of the differences that you found between the breeds? First of all, let's let me say that if you're a commercial producer and profit is one of your, um, your objectives, one of your, your enterprise objectives, then it really comes down to the performance of the doe herd. Now, we can talk about growth of the kids, and we can talk about carcass attributes, but it really comes down to fitness of the does. And when we say fitness, we're talking about reproductive attributes and health attributes. These does have to stay healthy, and they have to reproduce. And, um, and so that's, that's what we focus a lot of our, our research on, and we spend most of our time talking about that. The growth is fine, the carcass is fine, but they don't really drive profitability. It's all about doe performance. And so most of our research has been on the does. And so what, we'll, what I'll say is that probably, we probably spent 15 years after that pilot project basically just verifying what we saw in that very first year, which was that on, on the maternal side, fitness attributes, a pure blood or a full blood bored doe 
on average, is not going to be as productive and not as fit as a Kiko or a Spanish doe. And so whenever we talk to producers about starting a herd, we always tell them that you want to really look at Kiko genetics and Spanish genetics and kind of shy away from the board genetics because they're not going to give you what you need in a commercial herd for maternal performance. Now, we did do some carcass evaluations, which was probably the most interesting of, of all the work. It was a small project. We did three years and we processed about 300 kids that we, that we processed over those three years. And what we found that, and we had USGA graders grading these animals live and carcass. And as one would expect, when you grade these animals on the hoof, or if you grade them in the cooler, that the boar goats, they had better carcass grades. You know, you're scoring one, twos, or threes. The full bluffs and the crosses, whether out of a boar buck or out of a boar doe, um, they grade it better. But in those subjective numbers, but when we did dress outs and we did um, lean to bone ratios, there was no difference. Actually, the, the best dress outs, and, and we looked at the numbers, the USJ um, folks looked at the numbers, the best dress outs of all the crosses were the Spanish Kiko crosses. They had higher dressing percentages. And we looked at the lean to bone ratio, there was no difference. And so what we concluded, and we've seen some, some similar type things and some, some cattle work, if I recall from when we published this, this paper, is that the, the boar goats, the way they were selected and bred is they have this really short, compact build. And that gives them that real thick confirmation that buyers like. Where you look at a, a Kiko goat or a Spanish goat, they're a, a longer, leaner kind of an animal. So in essence, there's no more lean tissue there. It's just how it's presented. Oh. It's, it's kind of like I take, two, you know, I'll give an example. I take two sheets of paper and one of my kind of ball up, crumple up, and one of my fold nice and neat. And I present it to you. There's two totally different presentations, but there's, there's no more material for one versus the other. And so we advise producers, if you're doing market kit production, that yes, you can use a, a, a boar buck in your production system. They're not necessarily going to produce more meat, but the buyers like them and they're going to pay for more for them. So take advantage of that psychology of, of that look of that animal. And so when we start looking at how different breeds fit into a production system, we will say that boar goats work in a terminal sire program where you're taking those kids to market. And you don't need to keep that buck long. Get him, use him to get your does bred, and then sell it because you don't need them for the rest of the year. We found in our production system that there really wasn't much of a benefit in keeping those bucks around for a very long period of time. Now, if you're looking at producing um, replacement doelings, commercial production does, then I wouldn't use a pork buck. I would use a Kiko buck or I'd use a Spanish buck to get those good maternal attributes that we're trying to build a commercial herd with. Okay. That's a really good point there too. Cause so many people, you know, have just focused on like the, that shape of the boar and you, I mean, you look at it and it looks so much meatier. So yeah. that's really interesting though, to know that like ultimately the amount of meat is the same, 
it's just presented differently in those other breeds. They're just longer bodied, which totally makes sense to me. So you mentioned their um, maternal attributes, which I know is like super important as someone who like I've raised Shetland sheep and Katahdin sheep and 12 years of raising Shetlands. I never had to bottle feed a, a lamb that was rejected by its mom with my Katahdins. I am bottle feeding one or two lambs every year. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's no fun. No, <laughs> it's no fun. It's not cheap. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So when we talk about maternals, now we're talking about everything from the ability of these dogs to get pregnant all the way up to, to delivering kids, you know, and raising those kids to winning because reproduction doesn't end when the doe or you drops her, her kids or her lambs. It's when she weans them at, you know, whether we wean at three months of age, I know a lot of sheep folks wean it at two months, but whenever you wean, you expect that doe to raise that set of kids all up until your protocol says you're going to wean them off. And for us, it's, it's three months. You know, some producers may leave them off for like four months. It depends on their production system. But that's the expectation. And, and part of that, that maternal ability kind of goes back to the basic fitness. Um, if, if, if you have goats that are, are having constant problems with their feet, those are having constant issues with internal parasitism, that disrupts the whole production system. And if we were to go back to, to our, our main focus on, on maternal breeds, maternal genetics, one of the things that we saw early on with the boar goats was that they had a tremendous amount of internal parasite issues that the Spanish and the, the Kiko goats did not have. And so when you have does that are having parasite issues, they're not going to be good maternal performers. And so it all, it all kind of ties together. So, again, it goes back to that, that one term that we use which is fitness. And again, fitness equals the ability to stay healthy and the ability to reproduce. You got to have those two things to have a, a good commercial enterprise, something that's going to be profitable and extension of that, something that's going to be sustainable. Were some of the breeds better in terms of not rejecting kids? Um, if we were looking at early on, we had, not to a, to a great extent, but we would have a few more Bordeaux that we would have to go out and, and bottle feed. But I think the thing with the Bordeaux, it wouldn't, know, wouldn't so much that they were rejecting kids, is that they just weren't having kids. Oh. And, you know, and so if, if your reproductive rates are lower, then everything else is going to be just kind of academic at that point. It's really for discussion. You can have great growth genetics, but if you don't have any kids to grow, then what's the point? Mm-hmm. So was it problems with them just not getting pregnant at all or problems or more of them having singles rather than no, multiples? A lot of it was just them not getting pregnant or and some of it was also that the does were dying. You know, those, if you kind of understand internal parasitism and how it works in, in goats, their their greatest internal parasite birds are going to be around the time that they kids. Mm-hmm. And so one thing that we were fine was that because we we would deworm maybe once a year. We started twice a year, then we backed off just once a year because we wanted to find out the goats that genetically are going to be able to perform in our production environment. And what we would find is that by two months of age, the Bordeaux had a tendency to start drying up. They stopped lactating. Oh, wow. <laughs> and while, while the Kikos in Spanish, they kept lactating you know, for three, four months, even past weaning. 
And part of that was tied back to internal parasitism and the goats not able to maintain their, their body condition to the point where they could lactate and maintain a lactation. And the first sign was that you would see these little kids out there with long hair and pot bellies. And when you saw a kid like that, the first thing I would tell the students, go find the mother and see what the mother looks like. And usually the mother would have already pretty much start drying up. And that kid is having to go out and pretty much nourish itself without the benefit of, of a lactating dam. And of course that kid is out there picking up parasites and that's why they start looking kind of rough. And so we would see some of that. Wow. That's incredible. I, I know boars are not good milkers. Like I raise dairy goats. And so <laughs> I've had goats stay in milk for two or three years. And that's like my, my little personal research project is like, how long can I keep these does milking? Um, so to hear about a goat that like, can't even produce enough for two months that's yeah really yeah. astonishing yeah. Now, now we a lot of people say that that our projects have been kind of like the ultimate stress test on goats because we we try to um do a minimal input we want to make sure that we are able to tease out the genetic differences between goats and you know, we've we've had some boar goats that have done really well but they're by far the minority of, of that group of goats. We, what we find is that once you roll back to management, the genetic fitness of these goats is going to show up. So we can mask a lot of genetic shortcomings through over-management. We can throw all kind of money in, in, in management at these goats and they all do fine. That may not be the most sustainable way to do it. And we're, we advocate for low input management. Because it's not, you know, unless you're doing show goats or you're doing these high dollar registered goats, if you're the average commercial producer, you're selling by the pound. And so, you know, you have to be able to, to run these goats with minimal inputs, not no input. You got to put something into them, but keep it minimal. And that was, you know, through the research project, trying to find that balance to where we can maintain the, the performance of the herd while still allowing the genetics to show us which ones are really good doers in our production system and which ones are not going to be long-term herd members because they're just not going to perform. And I mean, there were some Kiko does, they fell out. You know, there's no perfect breed out there. Um, the, the thing with the Kiko goats is we had some that, you know, because they have a dairy background, some of these goats have some real um, problems with their udders after like the second or third lactation. And they would kind of call themselves out just by, they, they weren't able to raise their kids because the udders were so large or the teeth were so large or they were blown out. And so you would see some of that, that could become a problem if you got too many of those in the herd. And that was something that we've had very few of any other problems with the Spanish goats. Um, they have really small, tight udders. The thing about the Spanish goats, they're a little bit smaller. Mm -hmm. You're going to lose some, you'll lose some weight on those market kids, but they're reproductively sound. That was kind of the, the, the funny thing when we got started. And they always tell the story early on. When we had that pilot project with the, the born the Kiko. And after the first year and the board goats were having problems and the Kiko goats were doing fine. And you know, we said, well, this is this real easy explanation that these boar goats are coming from South Africa, a really dry climate. And the Kikos are coming from New Zealand. They're kind of like Tennessee, you know, plenty of, of rainfall, green grass. 
And so it was, it was kind of this, this environment of origin thing that the Borkas just aren't performing because they're not from a wet climate. And that seemed, that seemed to explain everything. But what kind of blew that, that little theory out the water when we brought all these Spanish goats in. And all these Spanish goats came from out in West Texas, Sonora, San Angelo, Uvalde, in that region. And that's a pretty dry area. And folks would typically say that these Spanish goats are not going to perform because they're not from, you know, they're from the same kind of a dry climate like a boar goat comes from. But those Spanish goats came in and they performed. They, they were right there neck and they, they were just as productive as the, the Kiko goats. And so they said, well, there's more to it than just the environment of origin because these Spanish goats have come from a dry climate and they're thriving here in our middle Tennessee um, production system. So there's something more to it than just where they're coming from. I'm not sure what it is, but it's, it's pretty evident what, what the um, outcome is. That's really interesting. Could you talk a little bit more about the Spanish goats and why someone might consider having them? Because I think so many people, if they think I want to raise meat goats, they're just looking at boars and kikos. But there's also Spanish and myotonics. And I want to get to myotonics in a minute. But since you were mentioned in some of the benefits of the Spanish already, can you just expand on that a little bit? Sure. The the Spanish goat, no, that that was like the you could say the original goat in, in the United States. Of course, goats in, in general, just like, you know, cattle, they're not really indigenous to North America or really to the Western Hemisphere. So the, the Spanish goats are, they're kind of a product of explorations from back in the, the 15, 1600s, I guess you could say. I like to liken the Spanish goat to Texas longhorn cattle. You know, everybody's heard of Texas longhorn cattle, and they kind of know the history. And so I like to say, you just take that narrative and you take a, a, a Sharpie pen and scratch out Texas Longhorn and write in Spanish goat, and you pretty much have their history. It's kind of the same thing. And so um, you know, over the, the decades or centuries, I guess we can say, that these goats have kind of adapted to their low input environment in the Southwest. There's, there were some pockets of Spanish goats in the Southeast as well. But more recently, out in Texas, when they were you know, raising a lot of those Angora goats for fiber. And the Spanish goats, you know, so you had, you had the Angora goats, you had the dairy goats, and then the meat goats were just basically just brush goats. They were used just to kind of clear land and to provide a, a, a barbecue for 4th of July or, or Juneteenth or what have you. And you can go buy a Spanish goat for like 10 or $15. There really was not much value in them. And so when the boar goats came in, which is about the same time when the, the mohair market kind of dried up because of the, the, the loss of the government incentives. The Spanish goats are the means of really replicating and really um, accelerating the boar goat genetics in the United States because they were seen as, as, as a vessel of really pushing boar genetics. And, and we almost lost the Spanish goats because everybody was prospering every Spanish goat that they had to boar goats to produce a, a superior meat goat animal. And so the Spanish goats were pretty much, they, they became endangered, I guess, because they're almost crossbred out of existence with folks not realizing there were actually some real positive performance attributes to the Spanish goats that now people are starting to realize that are there. And, and because they're, they're a product of natural selection, I think that's what plays into their ability to, to perform across a range of production environments. Now, whether they're out in West Texas or they're here in Middle Tennessee, they seem to do pretty well. They're a little bit smaller animal than the Kiko and the 
for because they um, haven't been really pushed for commercial production over the decades, I guess. But they really will form a really nice genetic base for a commercial herd if you're trying to build a commercial enterprise. You you lose a little size because they're not as big as I see it, but you're going to get the key at production and you'll get the hardiness that you're looking for in a commercial system. So, you know, you can get some Spanish goats and you can put a boar buck on them and produce some really nice commercial kids. Wow. That's really interesting. Um, I love the idea of animals that do well in a low input system. Cause I always kind of worry that the more you're intervening, the more you're creating an animal that would not be able to survive without your constant attention. Yeah. What, what happens is, you know, again, you start masking some of those genetic shortcomings by over management. You know, anything that, that we look at in terms of performance trait, whether it's reproductive traits or, or internal parasite tolerance or propensity to foot rot or even you know, lactation yields or, or kid growth, all those traits are going to be influenced by both the environment and the genetics. And we can overcompensate for poor genetics by overmanagement. But anytime we, we, we add management, we start changing the environment and we start adding input costs. And we have to be really careful about adding those input costs, trying to overcompensate. And what we typically find and what we tell producers in the end is that if you, if you start with poor genetics, you're not going to manage your way out of it. You're just throwing money down the drain. If you start with the proper genetics, that makes the management aspect of it a whole lot easier. You're going to have a few animals, no matter what breed you select, that are going to not be good doers, but you don't want to mask that to a great extent by overmanaging those animals. Identify those animals, move them out the herd, and get you some animals that will perform in your production system. Yeah. I love what the man who invented the FAMACHA system, there's a video of him on YouTube where he says that when it comes to parasites, we need to be like the lion on the savannah who is taking down the ones who are not healthy, but instead of being like the lion, we're being a nurse. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's very true. You have to kind of bite the bullet. It's, it's hard sometimes. And that's what got some people in trouble um, early on back when we were doing it. Cause when you're spending thousand, two thousand, three thousand dollars for a goat, you're going to do everything you can to baby that goat in hopes that you're going to get your investment back. And so when you find that this goat is, is not very parasite tolerant, you're going to do all you can to, to shelter that animal from being exposed to internal parasites. But at that point, what you're doing is you're propagating those genetics and you're sending those genetics down the line to somebody else and they're going to have problems with them because they're not going to probably spend 500 or $700 on management costs just to shelter this goat to keep it from getting internal parasites. And ultimately, all these genetics, whether they're Kiko, Savannah, a myotonic board, what have you, they're going to end up in a commercial production system. And these commercial producers are using these genetics and they're expecting to be able to produce kids with not a lot of input and a lot, not a lot of um, management requirements. I mean, I want to put those goats out there. Like what we do, we try to not put our hands on these goats except for at kidding and at weaning. And other than that, I don't expect to put my hands on these goats, period, um, for any reason. And so that's where, you know, selection and culling become important. You know, if, you know, and different producers have different approaches to how they go about culling their goats. 
but you know, back to your comment about you know being the being the nurse. Um, yeah, we, we have a lot of that because folks, when you've invested all kind of money in these goats, you're not gonna want you don't want any parasites or anything else to take them out the production system, and you're not gonna want to cull them. We used to have producers that say, Hey, I bought this goat two, three, four thousand dollars, and she hadn't had any kids yet, and it's been two or three years. So what do I do? And they already know the answer to the question. They're trying to find some kind of way that if I can just get uh, just one set of kids out of this dough. I can get my investment back, but it, it's just not how it works. You know, right. you no, know, for a commercial perspective, uh, no, <laughs> it, but the thing is whether you're a, a sea stock producer of either of any breed, you have to consider, you know, how do your genetics translate into a low input commercial production system? And I like to challenge these producers. If you were to take your herd, whether it's a Kiko herd or a Savannah herd or a Bora herd, if, if you manage that herd as if it was a commercial production system, what would happen to the fitness in your herd? And I think some of them kind of recognize that, yeah, um, yeah, we kind of maybe overmanage our goats a little bit. Maybe they say a little bit, but probably an awful lot because of all the money that's been invested in those animals and all the infrastructure that's been put into them. You know, our, our research facility, we don't have any barns on the place. We have little shelters that the goats get into but we don't have a barn to, to do anything with the animals and i think producers that come visit our farm they they, they kind of appreciate the fact that they say hey this is a goat farm it's not some fancy research station you know our fences are <laughs> kind of just a mess even before the tornado our fences are kind of a mess we kind of patch things up we don't have any big structures down there it's just you no know, pasture browsing areas and that's about it. Yeah. So um, let's talk about myotonics a little bit, because I think they're definitely one that gets forgotten a lot when people are talking about meat goats. What are some of the benefits that you found of the myotonic breed? When we start working with, with myotonics, before we start working with myotonics, I said, I will not have any myotonic goats on the place because we're studying <laughs> fitness. And we're, we're all about fitness and survivability and, and feigning under stress or you know, getting paralysis under stress is not a fitness attribute. And so <laughs> we said we're not, we're not fooling with them. They're really nice little novelty animals to talk about, but for a production, no. But we got to a point where we, we did the, the boar Kiko and the Spanish purebloods. And then we started looking at producing boar F1, which is a whole another project where the boar cross does. But we needed a, a fourth breed of sire to breed these goats to. And it was either myotonics or savannah bucks. And we decided to go with the myotonics simply because they're a Tennessee goat. And so that's why we went with them. They're really small. And so you're going to lose some weight on the kid side. Interesting thing about the myotonics, and we've done two or three little projects with myotonics, they have some really um, very favorable, better than the Kiko and better than the Spanish, they have very favorable internal parasite profiles. We're going to start a second long-term project looking at myotonics. And so they were more productive than the Bordeaux that they were on the study with. They weren't quite as productive in terms of kids weaned and, and, and some other fitness attributes as the Spanish and the Kiko but one thing that stood out about those goats is that without fail, they always had favorable internal parasite profiles. 
And so with this new project, we're going to see, can we get some of those, those favorable internal parasite um, attributes into a crossbred animal where we're going to be crossing these monotonics with, with Spanish and Kiko and see if we can kind of get that in, in a little larger animal. Interesting thing about it, when we take, so we, we run some monotonics now, a small herd of about maybe 20, 30 head. And when we take the goats to the, to the market, to the local market, they always grade out the highest because they've got that really, when they're uh, in a purebred form and they get that monotonia, they really have that real thickness to them. And so they grade out pretty well. And they always grade out the best and bring the most money at the market in terms of, of price per pound. But again, they're, they're small. And so there's some benefits there that we're going to do some little bit more research to kind of see where they fit in a production system. Um, right now, we kind of got them tagged as more of a, a terminal side breed, but I think the, the jury's still out because we still have some more research to do with those monotons. The one study that we did, we only looked at monotons as a purebred animal. Now we're going to introduce them into a crossbreeding system and see can we get some positive maternal attributes in a myotonic cross? Wow, that is so interesting. This has been so much fun and, and very educational. Do you have any final words for anybody who maybe is thinking about getting into meat goats or thinking about improving their herd? Yeah, yeah. Some things we might just be reiterating what was said earlier. And we know in a, in a commercial system, you're probably going to be using a lot of crossbred does, not necessarily straight bred does. And so we always advise producers, if you have to have board genetics on your maternal side, it should be no more than 50%. Um, and we've done some studies with boar crosses and the boar cross doe, whether it's boar Kiko or boar Spanish, is a far more productive doe than a straight bred boar. So you can use boar genetics on the maternal side, but at no more than 50% genetics. The, the, the lesser, the better in terms of that. Um, so if you're looking, if you're trying to produce uh, market kits, slaughter kits, by all means, get your boar buck or savannah buck for that matter and, and put them out. But the thing is that your primary target are market kits and not replacement does. If you're trying to expand your herd and we need, we need herd expansion, we still have a million goat deficit in this country in terms of how much goat meat that we import. We need at least a million more goats being produced. So there's room for herd expansion. That's where I'm going to use my Kiko bucks or my Spanish bucks to produce those replacement doughings. So breed selection is really based on what your production objectives are. And every breed has a role, whether it's Savannah, Boar, Kiko, Spanish, or Myotonic. You just have to determine what or my production objectives. And, you know, I guess the other thing I'll add, is, you know, we have a website. So mm -hmm. if, if somebody wants to kind of go and take a look at, you know, some of the research that's been done over the years, they just put my name into any search engine, Richard Browning, TSU, just those three terms, Richard Browning, TSU. Then a website will come up, and a lot of those, those reports are on that, that lab website. Okay, good. And I'll be sure to put that in the um, show notes also. I'll put a link to sure. it. Well, thank you so much. All right. My pleasure. My pleasure. And that's it for today's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to hit the subscribe button so that you don't miss any episodes. 
To see show notes, you can always visit fortheloveofgoats.com. And you can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash lovegoatspodcast. See you again next time. Bye for now.